Welcome to Mill Liberty, the voice of liberty for a new generation. Alright, Joe Walsh, Matt Kitty, John Sasso, welcome to Mill Liberty. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be back. Hey, Caleb, I mean this. It's great to be with you. Thank you for the invite. This week, we are going to be going over the myths and realities that surround monopolies. Teddy Roosevelt hated, hated small government. The gateway into space will help alleviate a lot of this problem. It was a fateful era we took 100 years ago with this kind of monopolization of banking and centralization of money and credit. Automation, streamlined productivity, and cost-effectiveness. There's two big government parties, and one of them is, is red and one of them is blue. We are creating a community of liberty lovers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of the Mill Liberty Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I am thrilled to have you here this week. It is so good uh, for you to uh, be joining us here on this program. I am thrilled to have your ear uh, for the time being. Do me a favor, and if you haven't done so already, be sure to go out and uh, tell your friends and tell your family to go out and subscribe to this program so that way we can continue to grow the network, to continue to grow uh, our base, uh, our community of liberty lovers that we have been uh, really trying to to improve and grow upon since day one. And then if there is any of you who really want to support the program, who really uh, want to support us financially, you can go and do that on our Patreon. Check us out on Patreon. Um, we have tiers for as low as $5 a month that you can get rewards and, and uh, cool little uh, additional items from that as well. So, Getting into this week's program, we have a very good uh, episode for you this week, one that we have not touched on, I believe, at all, and we've touched on quite a few issues, but this is one that I, I, uh, I don't believe we've, we've tackled quite yet, but it is one that is vehemently important, and um, I think part of the reason why we haven't really touched on it is because I wasn't really sure where I stood on this particular issue, but it is becoming increasingly apparent where I stand now, um, and it is even easier to <laughs> sort of figure out where we stand whenever we get into uh, this week's guest as well. So this week we're going to talk about the death penalty, um, which is something that has, I think, a lot of conservatives and uh, even some libertarians uh, somewhat conflicted, right? We, we want to see justice brought out. We want to see that the um, that people who are done harm to uh, are are properly served. And, uh, and for a lot of people, the death penalty seems very logical, at least with the um, absolute most abhorrent cases. Now, admittedly, um, in the past, I have been very cautiously pro-death penalty. Not necessarily, um, not necessarily somebody who wants to go out and see, like some people do, like 
Uh, I believe Tom Cotton is probably the scariest person on the death penalty. Um, and even, you know, even back in my more conservative days, some of his positions would have been a bit too much for someone like me. Um, because I, I believed at the time that if, if we're going to have a death penalty, it needs to be for the absolute worst uh, of the worst, and it needs to be uh, with the absolute certainty, with the most absolute certainty. And on the surface level, that makes a lot of sense. However, when we dig deeper into it, um, we find that too many people, too many innocent people, um, even though they are thought to have you know, DNA evidence or, or just absolute, without question of a doubt, evidence uh, toward their guilt, we come to find out that as technology improves, as our, our forensics uh, improve, as there might be someone who uh, could be withholding evidence um, comes forward, so many different variables play into account the possibility that a lot of people who are actually innocent are put on death row and too many times are uh, are killed because of it. And that is fundamentally immoral. Um, that is something that anyone who believes in, in, in being pro-life should be vehemently against. Not one innocent person should ever be put to death by the state. And if you had to pick between and ultimately this is the the biggest thing that that causes me to be against the the death penalty if it was 100 percent foolproof there's never a possibility that an innocent person would ever be put to death and it's only guilty people and only for the most abhorrent of crimes not just some uh a few misdemeanors um, then that would be a completely separate conversation that we that we would have at that time. But that is an, an entirely theoretical conversation that does not apply to today, uh, and it does not apply to uh, apply to likely sometime in in the immediate future either. What we deal with today is we deal with so many people being put to death because of bad evidence because of of misconduct on the end of the prosecutor uh which is a, a big issue that i see uh, happening a, across the country in the in the judicial system is prosecutorial misconduct that we'll be getting into in this episode um shortly uh so many different variables that lead to an innocent person being guilty and it doesn't matter or at least being uh, deemed guilty. It doesn't matter how many times we see uh, a, a truly guilty person of truly abhorrent um, nature and truly abhorrent uh, things that they have done. It doesn't matter how many of those people, if one person who is innocent gets uh, put to death wrongfully, that is enough to throw out the system and say, let's keep people from dying. Let's keep people from being murdered who shouldn't. Because guess what? If a guilty person is put away in uh, life in prison with an innocent person, um, those two people, at least you can, you can free the innocent person. You can't bring the innocent person back to life. You can keep the, the guilty person in prison where they should be, and you can free the innocent person. 
and then we can have further uh, discussions and conversations about what to do after that. And I think there's there's too many issues with the justice system um, to be ignored. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know this and I know this, the justice system is inherently flawed. There are too many issues with it for us to be okay with the state putting people to death. That's where I am today. That's where I am uh, where I have have come to the conclusion of um, that I am very comfortable at stating at this point that I honestly probably wasn't even the case even a year ago. But today, especially in, my, in the work that I've been doing within the realm of the criminal justice system, it is painfully obvious that nobody should be put to death by the state just on the basis of how unbelievably incompetent the state is that it is so easy for them to get something wrong. And they do, and they have done, time and time again. And they continue to do, time and time again. And that's just based on incompetency, not based on uh, uh, malpractice, which also very uh, frequently happens. And that has to be taken into consideration as well. So, with today's episode... We're going to dive into this uh, discussion. We're going to dive into this conversation. I think it's a really important one um, and one that is quite literally life and death. So it needs to be it needs to improve the 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 rhetoric around it. We need to uh, continue to push it to the forefront because this is a criminal justice issue. We can't just focus on even though, you know, if, if you follow the work that our organization does, you know that we focus very heavily on reintegration and, and, and all sorts of reentry uh, programs and stuff like that. But when it comes to uh, life and death, the issue of the death penalty is paramount. We cannot ignore it. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. I have brought on a, a special guest, Hannah Cox. She is the national manager at Conservatives Concerned about the death penalty. Uh, and she is the winner of our 2019 Trailblazers Award, Second Chance Trailblazers Award here at the Liberty Initiative for the activism category. So someone who's very deserving of that award, someone who uh, puts a lot of time and focus on this issue. Um, and I couldn't think of anyone better to bring on to the program this week to, to discuss about this important issue because it has been in the news quite a bit. And as we continue to um, as we continue to grow as a society, as technology continues to improve as a, as a society, we start to see just how frequently the system itself is flawed. Uh, there have been several de uh, death penalty cases that have proved to be actually these people could very well and very likely are innocent, uh, and they're on death row, and sometimes they they don't make it. Sometimes they actually hit their date and they're put to uh, put to death, and that's a problem. That's a serious problem that has to be addressed. So we're going to address it today with Hannah Cox. Please enjoy my interview with her um, on the issue of the death penalty. Hannah, uh, welcome to the Maliberty podcast. I am thrilled to have you on board. Um, it's especially good to have you uh, on here since you are one of our award winners for our Second Chance Trailblazers Award at the Maliberty Initiative. So uh, it's a it's a good uh, good good chance to connect. Thanks, Caleb. It's really good to join you guys. I'm a huge fan. 
So um, you ha- you touch on a really important issue that I, I don't think we focus on quite enough uh, when we're discussing criminal justice issues or just any issue, quite frankly, and that is um, that is the death penalty. So let's uh, just start out by, first of all, you know, you can go ahead and, and introduce yourself if you'd like uh, for those who might not know you um, quite as well. And then uh, let's go into a little bit about the work that you do with uh, conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Sure. Well, like you said, I think for many years, the death penalty has been somewhat siloed from the rest of the criminal justice reform movement. It was often seen as a very left-wing issue. And I think even as a lot of the right has caught up on this issue, they have been working much more on reentry and workforce development type policies, which is great. We need those things. But I think that you don't really get into the heart of criminal justice reform until you start addressing violence. You know, we can do all the reentry we want, but we're kind of treating the symptom versus going to the heart of the problem. And so I got involved with the death penalty a number of years ago when I was first working on some mental health issues and was very pro-death penalty at the time. And when I was asked to work on this, I refused and said, no, I'm not with you on this. No way. You know, I'm a true conservative. I'm I'm very pro-death penalty. But for the first time, I really got pushback on that from the people I was working around who were mostly left wing. And they said, but how is that consistent with your values? You know, if you're a person who values a limited government, that is assumedly because you know that it's corrupt, that it's fallible, that there's problems in how they carry out their programs, often many times corruption that can be found. So do you not think the same is true in the death penalty system? And it really spurred me to start researching it and looking more closely into the system. And I was pretty shocked at what I found. And I think that what my organization tries to do is educate people on those same things that I found out and make sure the conservatives recognize that this actually isn't uh, an exemption where the death penalty is this one system that the government functions really well in. It is actually something that I think is representative of how all government functions. And I think most of the time when Republicans start looking into it, they they tend to agree with that. Yeah, I think that's the case with um, a lot of issues. I, there, there are certain uh, agencies or departments within the government that, um, you know, Republicans or conservatives tend to sort of overlook the inefficiency or the waste or the corruption. Um, I think, you know, defense and, and Pentagon uh, spending and, and things like that is another great example of sort of an area that conservatives <laughs> tend to maybe overlook or maybe say, that well, that's a little bit different because that's, you know, a government a program that we actually like. Um, so with, with your evolution in, uh, into being against the death penalty, I'm curious about that. Uh, what, what was the, I, I guess, was there a, a single, um, issue or a single case that really sort of made you go, wow, that's, that's, you know, something I hadn't considered before, or, or maybe, um, maybe hadn't thought of before, or was it more of a sort of slow, um, accumulation of, uh, of a bunch of smaller uh, cases that just made you over time realize that this really is just inefficiency and it, and it can't uh, it can't go on. It was definitely a slow burn for me. I don't think I became opposed to the death penalty overnight by any means. I uh, And as someone you know who came up on the right and came up middle class and as a white person, I really had never been around the justice system. And so a lot of my research was not only finding out how corrupt the death penalty system was, but just the justice system as a whole yeah. and recognizing a lot of the ways that it functioned um, had these really serious problems. So, you know, some of the junk science that I came across early on in my research, uh, just finding out how how 
truly fallible DNA evidence is, how rare it is to even have it in the first place, but also how often it is misapplied. We have 45% of wrongful convictions that have the misapplication of forensic science to be somewhat to blame so far. So I think someone, you know, like me who grew up watching Law and Order and CSI, you think that, oh, we're past this era where we have a lot of wrongful convictions. And certainly that's not the case. We've actually had one person exonerated from death row for every 10 executions. Uh, and that's not to mention the thousands of other people who have had their cases overturned over potential potential innocence issues and just haven't been fully exonerated. And so that was definitely one thing that really got my attention and caused me to realize that we needed better protections. Um, as I said, I was working around mental health at the time, and I found out who was getting the death penalty, which was certainly not this notion of the worst of the worst. I think many people cling to when you really start looking at who's on death row and what the population looks like, what you'll find is a large amount of people who have serious, serious trauma and mental health issues. And I think too often people on the right write those stories off as like a bleeding heart thing, but we just need to have a better understanding of trauma and its scientific implications and its impacts on violence and criminality. And so as someone who was working around that, I did understand those things and was really upset to see we didn't have better protections for that population. Uh, and I also started to recognize how arbitrary it was, who got it, who didn't. It really had a lot of socioeconomic and racial bias and actually the leading determinant was the location where the crime was committed with two person of counties driving majority of death penalty cases in this country and all executions since reinstatement coming from only 16% of counties. So it really, um, really had nothing to do with the heinousness of the crime and a lot more to do with other factors that really shouldn't be considered. And then I think the other driving thing was the cost. Uh, everybody knows the death penalty is expensive, but most people assume that it's because it takes too long and that if you were to speed it up, that that would solve that problem. But the reality is, is that 70% of the costs are coming from the trial alone. And that means that even if the jury says, no, we're not going to give you the sentence, we're going to give a lesser sentence, the uh, county where it's occurring is still incurring the bulk of those costs either way. And according to one cost study in North Carolina, uh, which is pretty comprehensive, it's one of the better done studies in the country, it actually found that the trial was four times more than the appellate process. So this notion that speeding it up would in some way make it cheaper is totally bonkers. And also, um, you just have to point out that would risk executing even more innocent people. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is an issue that I think, um, you know, it's, it's one of those lingering issues that have really taken a while for me to sort of come around on. And I think that's the case with most people, even even some of the more um, ardent, you know, strict libertarians. This is this this is one that I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, for you, is there a situation in which you can maybe see a um, justification for the death penalty, despite, like, obviously, um, I don't want anyone to be killed if there's, you know, just one person that could be walked away that is actually innocent. Um, but is there any sort of instance in which you can understand or see that? Or is it all just, um, I, do you think that that's all just, uh, you know, better, better left to go other devices? Um, when trying to punish someone for truly heinous actions. Yeah, I think we can have the theoretical debate all day long, and I think people of good faith can disagree on that. I mean, mm -hmm. sure, let's say we're all on a desert island and there's someone who just won't stop um, killing people and we have no other way of incapacitating them or preventing them from harming, then maybe sure. But like, that's not the situation we're in. That's right. really far-fetched, and, and I truly don't think we will ever be in that situation again. And so we have to look at how it's operating in practice and is how it operates in practice okay? And the answer to that is absolutely not. There's there's really no justification for the system, you know, aside from the things I 
already mentioned, we know that it's not a deterrent. And in fact, that the use of it even uh, correlates with higher rates of violent crime. I would suggest that's because of the money being wasted on those cases versus being used on actually solving more crimes or um, on actually giving people the services they need to prevent violence in the first place. So I, I think that um, that's a huge issue. We've talked to many uh, murder victims, family members and members of corrections and uh, people who work in the legal system who are often really negatively impacted by this and, and would state that it causes them to have trauma and really has negative lasting impacts on them and their ability to either perform their job or to try to begin to move on with their life when they've incurred a loss. And so I think at any point when you start looking at how it works, who it impacts, and is it um, in any way operating efficiently, effectively, or fairly, the answer is always no. And so for me, I'm not really that interested in the theoretical discussion. I think that, you know, for some people, they like to have big in the cloud talks. I'm not. I'm a person that is really concerned with systems and how they're working, and it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been, uh, at least in you know, in what I've seen recently, there have been um, quite a few death penalty cases, and in particular, I believe in the state of Texas, um, that have really been sort of garnering a lot of national uh, national news attentions. Um, is there any case in particular recently that has popped up for you that really sort of I guess, paints the perfect picture of the ineffectiveness and the waste and, and on the other side of the coin, just the immorality of the system as a whole. Yeah, you know, there's just so many. Um, in my orbit, there's always these really terrible cases kind of floating around. But this year seems to have been particularly bad with the number of innocence cases we've had actually scheduled for execution date. So obviously, the Rodney Reed case just blew up in Texas. And that was yes. phenomenal. I'm glad it did. I think it really got a lot of people's attention who otherwise were not paying attention to the system. And that case certainly highlighted the um, some of the racial bias that we see in the system. And I think really pointed towards the potential corruption. You know, this is a guy who is a black guy who's having an affair with a white woman whose fiance was a cop. He gets what looks like framed um, for the murder, and it's, it looks like perhaps the cop was responsible for that. Um, there's DNA that wasn't tested. And I think it just it pointed to some of the innate corruptness, but also to just some of the really bad systems that we've put in place where it's really very difficult to get an innocence claim uh, brought before the court once you're out of your initial trial. I think a lot of people think if you're convicted on death row and new DNA comes up or there's new evidence, it's like, boom, it's tested and we're going to get to the bottom of this. And no, it's not how it works at all. It's often a very intense uphill battle to have that new information even considered. Uh, Rodney Reed was one of the lucky ones that had acquired the assistance of pro bono litigation who are very, um, very good at their jobs with the Innocence Project, but not everybody gets those um, people on their side and not everybody gets the same media attention. You know, as the Rodney Reed case was blowing up, there was another man that actually was executed in Georgia named Ray Kramatari, who also had innocence issues. There's another guy named James Daly, who's uh, currently set to be executed on my birthday, December 30th in Florida with serious innocence issues. Um, so I think that, you know, we could go on and on. There's Julius Jones in Oklahoma, another one, serious innocence issues. They're all fighting just to have their evidence tested. And um, it really is quite frustrating to watch how that works. Uh, with the federal executions and their potential to begin again, I think it's also highlighting just how arbitrary a lot of these cases are. So uh, there's one guy that always sticks out on my mind that's scheduled to be executed uh, at the federal level. And he was convicted in Michigan, which has not had the death penalty in many, 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 many decades. And so he wouldn't have been eligible for a death sentence. But because the crime was committed in a federal park, 
it became a federal crime. So had the crime been committed 100 yards over, he wouldn't have gotten the death penalty. But because it was committed 100 yards to the right, it became a federal death penalty case. And so it just goes on and on like that. It really is quite annoying when you start digging into the cases and just look at who's there. And I think most people would be really shocked to find just the nature of the crimes that are that are present. Can you speak a little bit more on the um, the DNA, um, the forensic evidence, and how fallible that that actually is? Because I don't I don't think enough people really understand that. You know, whenever they see um, there's DNA evidence to support the you know the the theory that this guy is is guilty, um, people just automatically wipe their hands and say that's it, that's the verdict. Uh, but the reality is that it's a little bit trickier than than just that simplistic uh, view. Totally. And I think what you touched on is something that we often refer to as the CSI effect in the justice community, because when juries are presented with DNA evidence, they are almost always likely to convict because they do hang their hats on it in that way. But the reality is, is that DNA evidence is still only present in about 10 percent or less of cases. So the reality is, is that most cases do not have that kind of forensic data available. It's just not um, how the shows make it seem where DNA is just everywhere. Secondly, when you do have forensic evidence available, it's often not a clear-cut sample. So if you were to go into a lab and they were to take your blood or do a swab of your cheek, that would be a pretty full profile of your DNA. Oftentimes what they have from a scene is partial DNA, and so they're matching up um, elements where they don't have as much data as they really need to truly make it foolproof. So that's one problem. Uh, another problem is that you have a lot of things that are junk science that were once considered foolproof. So you have things like microscopic hair analysis or bite mark evidence or even ballistic missile testing where you had people um, coming before juries and saying, this is the evidence, this is concretely what this evidence means, we are you know, unabashedly totally sure that this is what connects this person to this crime. And then years later we found out that this method of scientific testing is totally bogus and has no actual scientific value whatsoever. But what doesn't happen when those um, when we make those realizations is we're not going back over those cases where some of those things were used to convict people, which is really disgusting. Uh, and then lastly, you've got a lot of problems in the lab. So one thing that is really infuriating is that labs, forensic labs, are often paid by the prosecutor's office. So there is a innate bias there where they are working for the person who is basically pushing the government's case. Um, they're also at times paid based off of conviction rates versus off of like a flat fee for just finding the basic um, test that the prosecutor needs. So we've had a lot of misapplication at that level. We've even had some forensic lab techs who have been found to have lied in multiple cases about their findings. And then you also just have human error where things are going wrong in the lab and things are getting mixed up. And so there really is uh, a multitude of problems with DNA and forensic evidence. And that's why I think that you do find so many cases, again, 45% of the wrongful convictions we've discovered thus far have involved some sort of misapplication of it. How many um, instances in, in your work, in your experience, um, have you experienced prosecutorial misconduct? Um, because I think that's a severely serious issue that not enough people are talking about. And certainly there's not any sort of serious repercussions for, for something like that to happen when, you know, you you could quite literally mean life or death for someone um, by a malicious prosecutor. Um, can you speak on, on, on that uh, subject a bit? Yeah, I mean, as an observer more so, I'm not someone who really works in the courts up close, but right. certainly we see a lot of prosecutors 
prosecutorial misconduct come up in our innocence cases that we do work on. And I think that you're absolutely right. There's really no repercussions for it. There's little accountability. And it's one of the biggest problems in our justice system across the board. Um, I think one of the cases that exemplifies it best is the Curtis Flowers case out of Mississippi, which is a guy who has been tried six times now, all for capital murder every time. Um, the prosecutor there, who is elected, like most are, has constantly jury stacked. He has committed multiple Brady violations. He has um, tried to ensure that he didn't have black jurors on his juries. And so what happens is he gets a conviction. And then the case goes into the appellate process and then people are like, oh, it's pretty obvious you committed Brady violations and jury stacking and multiple other violations here of prosecutorial mis misconduct. So the case gets struck down. But all that happens is that he gets to start trying the case again and bring right. it um, again and do the same thing. So it just uh, occurred last year. No, sorry, I'm sorry, earlier this year, I think the Supreme Court struck it down for a sixth time and he's now considering bringing it for a seventh time. No one has ever voted him out of office. He's never received any kind of fees or fines. I mean, if a death penalty case costs about a million dollars more than a life in prison without parole case, you're looking about $2 million a pop typically for each case. And he's bringing a case for the seventh time. Just imagine the burden that's placing on taxpayers in a tiny Mississippi county. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's certainly a huge issue. I think that... Uh, off the top of my head, I want to say it's about 19% of cases have prosecutorial misconduct when we've wow. discovered wrongful convictions. So it's, it's certainly an element that uh, is very problematic. Yeah. Is is there any particular um, solution that, that you can think of? I, I, I know this is, you know, n nothing, nothing formal, obviously, but um, because I, I, I just, I just can't fathom the idea that, that nobody, you know, nobody in the, in the legislature, and, and perhaps they have, um, and it just hasn't gone, you know, gone to many places. But I can't fathom the idea that this is just something that people are are ignoring and, and people just don't care about. I think they're just really unaware of it. Um, as my mom always says, as I rant about these things, she's like, but how would we know? You know, how would we as the average person know? And I think that's a really fair thing to point out. It's really hard for the average person to be aware of even what their local politician is doing, much less their local DA. It's just not something that's really in front of them a lot of the time. And so I think we've got a real failure on the media's part to do better investigative journaling around this and actually report on these instances and hold these people accountable. They don't ever do that. Even in the Curtis Flowers case I mentioned, there's very little finger pointing at this prosecutor. And so I think that uh, for people to be better educated, that's a component that the media is failing us in that we need them to uphold. I think people then need to become educated and actually hold their prosecutors accountable, get involved in their races, pay attention who's running for their local DA, hold them accountable to their promises. But I also think, uh, you know, more systematically, well, first and foremost, I would say, obviously, just in the death penalty, because I think that it's always going to be prone to corruption and to human error. And so this is kind of um, an innate problem with the system in and of itself. But, you know, just ending the death penalty doesn't totally address the problem of prosecutorial misconduct. It's much bigger than that and affects all parts of the justice system. So I think we clearly need some policy changes that would actually um, take people's licenses away when they're found to have done this. You know, if you're a defense attorney yeah. and you get caught breaking the law over and over and over again, you have your license taken away to practice. That doesn't happen for prosecutors. Which is a, a really backwards, uh, a really backwards way to look at that. When um, you know you're supposed to err on the side of innocence, yet we we tend to punish those who are defending the innocent um, more often than than those who are trying to prosecute them. Um, so I, I want to talk about a little bit more about what you uh, specifically and what your organization is doing uh, currently in in state legislatures across the country. So um, can you talk a little bit on on that subject for us? 
Yeah, well, we're really excited for the next couple of months. We had a huge year this year. We actually, um, as a movement, pulled off the hat trick. We had a repeal at the legislative level of the death penalty in New Hampshire, uh, where we actually overrode a governor's veto. So that was a really significant win. We saw a moratorium put in place in California, where uh, California actually has the country's largest death row. And so they had a um, governor put a moratorium in place on executions. They actually have a pretty uphill battle to repeal because California state constitution is a hot mess and you have to ballot <laughs> yeah. campaign and it's a long story. But um, and then we had a judicial win in Washington where their state Supreme Court struck down the case with um, a, it was really an amazing win. And I think will set really great precedent for other states to try to bring those same challenges. So we are going to be really involved in a couple states. Um, we've got Wyoming that's coming in hot. They actually fell only four votes shy of repeal in the past year. And so I think we've got a pretty good chance of passing repeal there, certainly within the next two years there. We've seen a lot of movement in Utah. They've actually moved it through their chamber uh, once before, and I think we'll continue to ride that momentum. So we'll definitely be involved there. Colorado, I think, is another state where it looks like we might pass it in the next couple of months. So we'll definitely be organizing. And Ohio, Ohio's looking really good. They've got a Republican governor who doesn't seem to want to have executions. Uh, we've heard from a lot of Republicans in the state, both in leadership and at the grassroots level about this issue. Um, so I'm excited about Ohio. And a lot of what we do is go in and just try to educate people, whether it be lawmakers or the general public or just other conservatives about the same things we're talking about here. And just kind of walk through like why this isn't a conservative issue. You know, we value fiscal conservatism. We value using our tax dollars well. We value protecting innocent human life. And we know that the government needs to be limited to do those things. So the death penalty falls outside the line of our values. Um, and we try to mobilize people and help them lift up their voices. We also work with a lot of stakeholders in the community. So we have uh, hundreds and hundreds of murder victims, family members we work with, former members of law enforcement and corrections, a lot of exonerees, and then a lot of people of faith are really getting very active on this. So we try to organize those coalitions and help elevate their voices and make sure that lawmakers hear them. So if people are in any of those areas, uh, we definitely have big campaigns coming. And then in other states where maybe we're not making a move for repeal yet, we're still seeing a lot of interest around this. Uh, this year, we had 11 states with Republican-sponsored pieces of legislation to repeal the death penalty. So not all of those states are as far ahead as far as their vote counts to get it actually through, but I do think we'll continue to try to educate and mobilize and prepare the road to hopefully seeing other states go in that direction soon. Have you been lobbying um, governors as well as uh, state legislatures or, or primarily just focusing on the, the legislative bodies? We will talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that obviously, you know, if we get a chance to talk to a governor, we we definitely take that and and always are hopeful. Um, we even outside of moving a bill, try to be in talks with the different governors because a lot of the decision making rests on their shoulders, and a lot of them are having to make really difficult decisions about when they're carrying out execution dates and how they're going to manage that. Um, so we definitely try to be in, in close talks with anybody in leadership. Yeah, I think that's um, that's that's certainly a good avenue too because it. Uh, while while governors can only do so much, they also have a very powerful tool in the in the sense of the pardon, um, and that's that's something that I think governors in the executive branch as as a whole should be utilizing a lot more frequently um, than some of them do, especially in certain states where this this practice is is pretty common. Um, yeah, it's something that you don't have to wait for a certain number of votes to to make it happen. You can just go ahead and do it.
And I think that's a really important point. So often on the right, we see governors that are very cautious of trying to not um, legislate with the pen, right? And I think that's important. We don't want to see governors do that. But the pardon is an important check and balance that they're given on the judicial system. So I see it very differently. Uh, When the governor of California California put his moratorium in place, there were some on the right that accused him of that. And I absolutely disagreed. I think that was totally within his functionality, constitutional functionality in that role. So we do try to make sure that they're aware that this is a very separate thing. We're not talking about legislating with the pen or executive actions, we're talking about important check and balance you have on a system that you need to activate. Right. There's a big difference in, um, say, going out of your way to to sign executive orders about certain things and just using the very constitutional check um, that has always been provided to, to the executive branch, whether it be in the federal level or the state level, um, to, to utilize that authority as, a, as an important check on the legislature as well. Precisely. I absolutely agree. Well, um, Hannah, we are starting to run out of time here, but I do want to give you an opportunity to um, to go ahead and plug in anything that you would like to, whether it be your social media, um, anything that you're working on in particular that uh, you want people to start to pay attention to and focus on, um, you know, whatever it may be, just go ahead and plug away. Totally. So we are at conservativesconcern.org for our website. Lots of good news there. Our chapters are listed there. All of our contact information is listed there. So if you're wanting to get involved and want to know how, reach out. Um, We also are really active on social media. We're at our acronym CCATDP on Twitter. That's CCATDP and also on Facebook as well. So we'd love to get anybody plugged in that's interested in having a bigger role in this issue. Awesome. Well, thanks, Anna, a lot for for joining uh, joining the program here. This is an issue that we haven't touched on too much, uh, but it really is important. And I, I look forward to seeing positive developments um, about this issue in the future. And we'll have to have you back on again soon to uh, discuss any further action that's been taken. Well, thanks so much, Caleb. We really appreciate your all's advocacy and efforts in this regard and, and look forward to working with you more. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to wrap us up here on this week's edition of the Liberty Podcast. Uh, I want to thank you again for tuning in to the program this uh, this week. And next week, if I if my calendar is correct here, next week should be the last episode of the year of 2019 uh, for the Liberty Podcast. And I am working on a special guest for that. Um, I don't have a confirmation as of yet, but be on the lookout, especially on our social media, uh, because we'll we'll be announcing that very shortly if, if uh, things pan out the way I'm hoping it does. So with that being said, that is a great time for you to go out and follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Caleb Franz. You can follow the show at Maliberty and follow the organization at Maliberty or check us out on Facebook at the Maliberty Initiative. Uh, And then we are on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe, share the program with your friends and family, and check us out on Patreon if you want to support the program. We are starting at as little as $5 a month, and there is always going to be more content on that, uh, especially with the more people that we have on it. So if you want to help booster the content that uh, we have here on the program, then be sure to go ahead and check that out as well. So until next week, we'll see you.